Welcome to Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. And today I have a conversation with an American in Paris, David Stern, conductor extraordinaire. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm all right. I'm all right. I indeed am in Paris. And you've, you've made your life in Paris for a very long time, haven't you? Yeah. So now I've, le I've actually lived longer in Paris than, I, than in the United States, which um, is quite a, 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 a concept for me. But yes, um, wow. I came over in 1990. Oh, my. So it's so 31 it's years. Been a while. Yes. And you never met, we never met when you were at the Beresford years ago on 81st Street on, on <laughs> Central Park West. But uh, where I you didn't can say that. I no longer live there, so it's fine. I know, I can say that. I can say that. And I remember yeah. your mom, obviously. She was a force at the Beresford. But you're a force in Europe. And I have to say, and here in the States, um, you conduct something that is called the Opera Fuoco, the Opera Fuoco, Fire, yeah. and yeah, the, Palm yeah. Beach, the Palm Beach Opera. And there are many yeah. other things. I mean, in Shanghai and in China that you deal with. Oh, yeah. And your guest conducting, and I know that there was going to be a BSO, Boston Symphony performance, a year ago, but COVID got in the oh, way. No. Do you have to mention that? Yes, sorry, it's so sorry, cool. sorry, it's sorry. So, I, so yes, first, I'm one so thing at a time, American in Paris. Describe your life as an American in Paris, first with Opera Fuoco and what it, what it is for us, the right. listeners here that might not know. Yeah. So... Um, I, I arrived in Paris, uh, well, we arrived, my wife and I arrived um, in 1990, fresh off our honeymoon, actually. Uh, nice. Tomorrow is actually our 31st anniversary. Um, and uh, we came over um, ostensibly for, uh, well, my wife was already playing in uh, Musica Antiqua Köln, um, Reinhard Goebel's group, uh, mm -hmm. which is one of the it was then one of the hottest um, um, early instrument ensembles. It was. And, um, and I was coming because I wanted to find myself in opera uh, repertoire and the opera world. And the first person for whom I was assistant as a young thing coming out of New York uh, was John Elliott Gardner. Uh, so um, immediately opera and period instruments were the new thing for me yep uh, and i delved into it and found myself i lost myself in terms of that and i was very happy doing so and new york had been a different repertoire juilliard was about orchestral conducting right. uh, otto Müller was you know this gigantic figure in everyone's life and yet it was it was not really opera conducting and it certainly wasn't period instrument and i needed i needed that kind of new um, direction and that's what i found in europe i found uh, very much uh, uh, a world which where uh, especially in the 90s still new opera stagings made the front page of, New York, of the local papers of the Figaro and uh, Le Monde, um, it, you could still shock society with an opera staging, which is no longer the case in many places in the world. Um, mm -hmm. I, it's one of the things I've always loved about Paris. It's that um, opera is about passions, whether it's screaming at each other during rehearsals or <laughs> screaming during performances. And mm -hmm. yes, it's true that Parisian, French, European 
audiences will boo if they don't like something. But isn't that great that there's enough that's a, there's enough passion going on in the audience that that risk is there. In Paris, there's n- almost nothing worse than if everybody in the hall claps. Now, this is Paris we're talking about. Right. If everyone in the hall claps, that means that you've pleased everybody, but you haven't really moved everybody. Ah. Because if you're going to move everybody, then somebody is not going to like it. Right. So the best in Paris is when you have half the house clapping and half the house booing. That is truly <laughs> a success. I love you that. have to have the stomach for it, you know. Uh, and I've been in situations where there's been, <laughs> and you live through it, but you realize that um, if someone cares enough about it, they'll either love it to death or hate it to death. And what it means to take a chance. What's very interesting is you do take a chance on young performers because part of the mission of Opera Foco is working with people just starting out. Tell tell us what you do and why is that different from, let's say, a house in Dortmund or wherever? (laughs) Dortmund, yeah. So I I started off in France doing a variety of, of, of opera assistantships as a young musician. And then from then on, I got myself involved in the Aix-en-Provence festival. Right. And there, there's a, an academy for an international academy for opera, which was started when I was there and I was its first director. And it gave me a taste of what it really means to work with young people. Mm-hmm. And I realized pretty soon off the bat that if you're really going to work with somebody, then you have to work someone on the long term. You can't just say, oh, I'll give this young singer a role in an opera and that that means that you've done something. When you've done something, it's because you've taken someone through different repertoires and you've taken someone through a period of development and three years before they could not sing X and Y, but then they come out singing um, you know, B and Z after three years. And that's when you've really done a, a job. So not long after I left X, I did some other gigs and then I decided to create uh, an orchestra of period instruments and together with that work on uh, uh, working with uh, young singers. And that's what we've developed. And we have now a program which lasts uh, three to four years per generation. Mm-hmm. So we are now only on our fifth generation, but it's, you know, three years each at a time. So we're actually in our 17th year. And we do master classes and we do small concerts, chamber music, or we also do concertante versions of things and full operas. And it's so nice to feel like I can, I take these singers and I get to know them and they've done Mozart and they've done Handel, but they've also done Cole Porter. And we throw in some 19th century repertoire and uh, we do some Monteverdi. Um, and even some serious jazz where they have to improvise and um, go into areas where the average uh, opera singer doesn't like, doesn't know about, is, is afraid to go in. And I love that development part. That's that's really, um, what's also important is that all the singers, no matter what generation they've been in, can come back and coach when they need to. And it's like an extended family. So when I come back from working uh, from a, a, a tour in Asia or in the States or in Europe, and I have a few weeks off, um, I get singers to come over and they, and they coach and I continue working with them, even if they have left uh, Fuoco years ago. And that's, that's, that's a very important feeling. If you're going to be a singer out there, it's very, very difficult 
only gets more and more difficult. And if right. you don't have a support system of, of, of not just sending them out and getting gigs, but having them, what's great about Fuoco is that it, we allow them to mess up. We, we say, you know, this is a chance. You may not get through this role. This might not be for you, but we're going to try because if it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean you're not a singer. It just right. means you've learned something from the experience. I think it's what's, we're all so afraid not to have achieved constantly that right. for young musicians, young singers, they have to feel like they can try something and dare. And if you really dare, then there's a chance it won't work. So David, there yeah. are, yeah. No, I'm just Go curious of, of choice of repertoire because you've gone from Monteverde to Cole Porter. What right. about living? What about living people? Is it all that um, people? Uh, some of those the living people are. So it's funny. Um, uh, we are going to be doing our first master class with a living composer working on her own works, and it will be Kaya Sario. Uh -huh. uh, and Kaya Sario is one of. I mean, I love her music, uh, and it's it's extremely identifiable. It's it's um, it's a music that has no compromises. Um, L'amour de loin, which came to New York, made a huge hit. I mean, her her music is so respected, mm -hmm. and I find it it's not even a question of something that is that it it has its own um, signature. Uh -huh. When you as a composer, you you know this. You you know that there there are times where you find yourself in your own music and you don't feel like you have to justify it. You're in your music, right? But you get you get so to it, a point. Look, David, you get to a point where you don't care. You do what you you do what you can do, as it were, and you don't care about the res, about anybody else's opinion. I never fit into. A, I, well, I've never fit into any school ever, and I don't believe in it. God forbid you. Should, no, yes. A lot of people, a lot of people felt they had to. And you hear that when they do, and we're not going to name names, but you feel yeah. like there are certain people who said, okay, well, this is my hook and I'm going to develop it because I know the hook works. And you, you lose, it loses its, its impact because it's no longer sincere. And so someone said, oh, are you an, are you a tonic composer? Are you a, uh, you know, atonal or tonal composer? What, what a stupid question. What a stupid question. It's like, are you a Baroque singer? What, you sing Baroque, you don't sing Baroque. There's no such thing as Baroque singer. There's, there's a musician and there's not a musician. I mean, uh, what are we talking about? One thing is a composer that I'm finding in writing my third opera based on the Isaac Bashevis singer novel, The Slave, is that I'm very concerned about in the writing that the diction will come through. And yeah. when you can, yeah. for example, let's go back to Handel, English operas written by a German composer for a specific audience oh. in London, right? Oh, very. How do you put it? Describe your process in working with those young singers to make sure every one of those words comes through. What do you do? Okay. You start off by not just saying uh, Baroque opera, but Baroque gesture. Uh, Everything in Baroque music is about a musical gesture. And the right. whole relationship between rhetoric and music is something that was much more developed, much more studied. And codes, now you could say there were too many codes, but of course, when you have too many rules, the, the, best, the best thing about rules is that one breaks them. So um, there were codes of how to write for a gesture that expressed pride or love or, you know, and um, there are simply 
uh, in Baroque music, you have to choose what are the words that are most important in your phrase? Mm -hmm. What right. are the notes that are most important in your phrase? Correct. In modern, um, and I hate to say it, a lot of, uh, a lot of Baroque in America, sound. It's about having the right sound. It's not about the right sound. It's about telling a story. Right. And if you can tell a story, then you can save the words and use the words so that the words convey not just the meaning of what you're saying, but the gesture of the phrase. Good. So it follows a path that goes much, that is much closer to normal speech than would otherwise be. Um, so I work on the first thing I do with my singers is mm -hmm. they have to speak the text and speak it to me convincingly. If they cannot do it, convincingly as an actor, then they're never going to be able to get through because then they're just hiding behind the notes and you can I hear when someone's hiding behind the I notes. I love this. So you have yes. to get that way. Speaking the text. You just said speaking the text. That's fabulous. Go on. Well, that's what it is because you're you're kind of, it's like you're taking a, a, a chisel and you're um, making sure that the word doesn't get hidden by the right. music, by the note, by the Beautiful. sound. Beautiful. The sound and the music note has to has to exemplify what the word means. So you it's like saying nothing happens in Bach, because in the cantata he says there's one phrase and it's uh uh got du bist der Herr, and then you say du bist der Herr, du bist der Herr, du bist der Herr, du bist der Herr. You say it 45 times and you say it's always the same. No, it's not the same. Bach uses the gesture so differently that every time you say God in this term Herr, it it changes. And right. that's the expression. That's all the color that happens in Baroque. And what right. I love about Baroque music is that it forces the singer to make to do, go the extra step. You cannot just rely on the composer you have to do the work yourself and so many singers or musicians think that there's nothing to do because there's nothing written oh my god so yes this is what this is the kind of world in europe that i loved falling into when i first arrived good. here good good and what's sustaining and it's the kind of work that i love doing when i go back to florida or to virginia um working with young singers in, in different uh, repertoires because it doesn't change it doesn't change Same even in Puccini you can understand it well that's your repertoire somewhat in Palm Beach Palm Beach Opera is you know for that audience you you're doing a lot of the standards I, I'll never say no to Puccini you know me not, no, tr trust me me neither <laughs> me neither the way he the, the theatricality of it and also this this great sense of what's going on on stage it's phenomenal stuff Yes. But your approach doesn't really change, does it? From Opera Four goes to Palm Beach Opera or any place else you go. It really doesn't. Of course, you're, okay, there are certain things sustaining a vocal vocal uh, right. um, the, the, the sheer difference between a forte in, in Mozart and, and a forte in Puccini. But I tell you, if the reason why I feel like I get how to conduct Puccini is because I've done Monteverdi. I love it. Now, Monteverdi is all about reciting text and going, it's mostly recitative and a little bit of aria. When you slip into the aria, you cannot all of a sudden um, be 
completely disconnected from what you did as an recitative. You have to be able to recite and sing and move back and forth. Good. Now with Monteverdi, it's already, it's more blended in Monteverdi than it is in Mozart. In Mozart, you have the, the recitative, then you have the aria. He, in Monteverdi, it goes back and forth. It's so fluid. In Puccini, it's the millisecond. There's one moment of a recitative, and I then know. all of a sudden it goes off. He never oh. writes a recitative. No one talks about a recitative in, in Puccini. It's all over the place. And you have to be a master of it, because if you oversing, and there are these great moments when Puccini will just have one note for the singer, just one note. And meanwhile, there's a, an incredible orchestral palette behind. And that, that one note is so difficult to enunciate because that's the, that's the recitative, that's the thought process. And meanwhile, the psychology is the orchestra. To get to that level, if you haven't done your homework with Monteverdi, you, you're not gonna, you're, you're way behind for Puccini. Not that Puccini should sound like Monteverdi, of course not, but the approach is the same. What we're trying to do, we're trying to tell a story. That's all we're trying to do. That's what you're doing in your, in your movie. Something I've noticed as a composer all my life, through many composers I've worked with and operas I've gone to hear, that no one knows how to write for the, in recitative. Very few people. And doing right. what you talk about that this in Puccini, where you don't notice it. Now, David, why don't you notice it in Puccini? Um, well, because he does it, it's, it's, so, um, it's, it's so subtle when, um, when, he, when, when the singer stops singing and is all of a sudden, all of a sudden well, stop, is obviously still singing, but is all of a sudden reflective in her or his thoughts, the music, bends goes with that person and it's so natural with Puccini that you don't notice it if you're aware of it and you're thinking about it and you're looking for it you'll find it all over the place there's no problem but that's the, the beauty of it is that in its naturalness you don't notice the details I love it and that's what's great about it it's true and butterfly is one of the great examples in my in my book that first act of the final version you just don't know where it, it is fabulous the way it goes in and then suddenly you get the like the duet with Sharpless at the beginning. Oh my God, where this comes from. Well, also you have this incredibly driven overture, which has so much energy and there's, there's tremendous amount of, okay, there's Bach-like um, uh, counterpoint and- uh, Butterfly we're and talking about, yeah. Butterfly, right. And it drives you and drives you and drives you. And then all of a sudden, you're, you're focusing, and it's all conversation. It's nothing. Jump There's no on. art. I know. It's unbelievable. And if you, if you look at all the little parts, it seems really complicated. And then when you listen to it, it's all, it just flows, and it's one large thing, and it's, it's wonderful. So that's, I think that's, that's the, key, the key element of, of that in, in really good opera writing is when it seamlessly goes from one to the other. Uh, you know, just, just think of before Kejeli da Manina at the when in the beginning of in the first act of of Bohem, uh, you have just the horn coming in with the A flat, and that A flat fills gives us a sense of of suspension of time. It's one note. It's one note. Mimi, same thing. 
Me chiamano no Mimi, right before. It's an E, isn't it? So you have these people who just, and again, is he trying to fit into a tradition? No, he's just writing what he's in his, what's in his ear. Plus they've just met each other and they're, they're, they're hot for each other. But he's, he's, he's got this restriction that he's starting. Well, that's because psychologically, oh my God, we've been going to talk about me for the next two hours because we could not start crying in about 20, 10 minutes. But, you know, Mimi is so afraid of really saying who she is, of divulging too much. She, oh, and all she talks about, she talks about how, um, uh, how she makes flowers out of silk, but they're not real. They don't smell. They don't have, but, but, but then the, the, when the first light of spring comes over, that is, that's mine. That's my light. And then the, the orchestra comes in because it's exactly that. It, she's finally allowed to express herself and the entire orchestra expresses itself beforehand. But if there weren't that difference of this, 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 this shyness, shyness and this hesitancy, then the later wouldn't, we wouldn't have any, any contrast. So, you know, which brings us to another point is the whole concept of contrast. Contrast in the century, chiaroscuro, so light and shade. Heavy light, heavy light, I know it sounds like it, it's not, we don't even use that term in English, heavy light. Heavy light, schwerleicht, uh, one talks about in German. Basically, it's down bow, up bow. Down bow is heavy, up bow is light, so heavy light. Now, in 18th century, the concept of um, two down, of two bows, this was not two bows, bum, bum, this was not two bows. Bum, bum is one bow stroke. So the up bow is actually related to the down bow. A down bow is, is a forceful sound and the up bow is the, is the natural extension of the first note, which means that we So it's not because we're trying to be Baroque that you articulate that way. No, it's because that's this, the DNA of the 18th century is light and dark, heavy and light, it's contrasts. If you find any great aria, and they're almost all, all of, of Handel's, there are in every passage, two words that, that contradict, that conflict with each other, that set up a, a, a confrontation. It can be love and war, it can be uh, um, thought and, and emotion. I mean, there's a thing, you know, he sets up contrasts. And that's what drives the, the theme. That's where you know whether the theme goes to this measure or away, or if it's forte or if it's piano, because of contrast, because of articulation. And that's the thing for any music for 21st century as well. Without the contrast, without the articulation, then we're dead. Then we're just making sounds. And then you can do whatever you want, but it's not music. It's not music, and it's not, when you talk about articulations, the thing I tell my composition students, I mean, you're writing notes, but where are the dynamics? Where are the hairpins? What's going on? Where are the phrase markings? How's it being played? How's it being sung? What's the context? It's, what you're doing is what a great novelist does. Particularity, right. specificity. And through the specificity and particularity comes the expression and moves right. us along. 
Talk about pulse and pacing, because this to me is a fabulous concept when you mentioned yeah. Puccini, because he had to go back and work on Butterfly as an example to get the pacing right, you know? Absolutely. And it's very true also of Peter Grimes, because I know the history of that, which is very, very difficult in many ways, story-wise and musically. Oh, pacing, absolutely. talk about pacing in Baroque opera versus romantic opera versus new opera in five words or less. It's, it's a hard thing to talk about, but I love your thoughts. Okay. Um, wow, this is a very good question. So um, uh, pacing in, in, you have to keep certain things in mind and you have to be a bit of uh, a historian in the sense that Handel's music was meant to fill the entire, the entire evening. People didn't have television, they didn't have iPads, there weren't movies to go to. So you needed to start at six o'clock and finish at 11. It was not considered anything unless you did. And in the 18th century, they played intermezzi, which were short operas during the intermissions. So the whole concept of the length and the, and of, the, of the arc of the piece is based on a very much larger scale. Puccini operas are not long. They're 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 never like never feel long, um, and the the, um, the 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 intensity of the drama is such that it it never gives up. Baroque opera has to give up, and that's kind of the point. There are moments which are lighter, so that people can just breathe because they're there for the long haul. They can also leave. They can also bring food. I mean, it was much of the the. Opera attending experience was much more alive than it is in the, in, in the 20th, 20th century in modern times, where or, we have to or, sit religion. Or let's remember the Opera Comique, the Jockey Club had a room in the back. We won't talk about what happened there. <laughs> they, they were stockage. They crapped. Uh, no, absolutely. There was tons of stuff going on, and that was and certainly in Paris in the opera. There was tons of stuff going on in the anterooms. Um, uh, so um, composers knew that. So they wrote, you, you can tell when the composer says, okay, well, for the next few arias, we're going to take it. Right. Whereas um, by the time you get to Verismo, the idea is to get rid of that as much as possible. And then there's that direction, there's that constant direction, which brings a very important question. That's often what I'm asked by composers or librettists, what is a good modern opera? What is a good story for a modern opera? Go for it. Okay, so um, the minimal number of, of uh, singers, not because you're trying to save money, but because you want always to be able to say, oh, I know what's going on in the story. Mm -hmm. Take a story that can be discussed in one sentence. So Wozzeck, which is obviously one of the great masterpieces of the world. Right. But has tons of characters. It's very complicated to put it on. What's about take about? A man who goes mad. Yeah. Period. You can explain it in one sentence. And then from that energy, you can divert and talk about this character and that character and what happens in this scene. But where Vatsek wins out over Lulu is that there's this constant direction where Lulu loses itself a little it's bit. It's all over the I place. I love the third, but it's all over the place. And um, and so Salome, Salome has 
this direct line that goes from the beginning of it to the very end and it's a noose around the neck you never it never lets it's incredibly tight fitted and that's brilliant um and then uh uh I, I would say turn of the screw. I mean, I love Grimes, but you know, turn of the screw also. You know, just when when Britain knows how just to find the right pieces. So <clears throat> the the characters have to be some because you you want to be able to you want to be able to concentrate your musical writing so that there's as little fat as possible. Right. So you say the more modern you get, the more it's obvious because, it, and then after you've studied all your handle, you look at Purcell and you go to Dido, mm. which lasts 50 some odd minutes and is an entire opera. And you go just to the recitative before um, when I'm laid for the right. Dido's. And what does she say? She says, thy hand, Belinda. Mm -hmm. So this is a queen who until then has said that she is stronger than her emotions and will um, not let her emotions guide her. Until and she <laughs> keeps for love until he dumps her. Yeah. And after she throws him out, well, he doesn't dump. He comes up with a idea concept, and he tries to apologize for it. I yeah, mean, well, men. Basically, I got to go on the road, babe. I'll see you later. <laughs> basically, what he says. It wasn't me. It was it was the gods, right? That's what it was. <laughs> sure. And so she doesn't buy it. She throws him out. Yep. Then, all of a sudden, for the first time, for the only time, she goes to her lady in waiting, and she says, "I need your help. I'm lost." Instead of an entire aria, uh, what Purcell does is that he writes, thy hand, Belinda, that's it. That's it. That's all. After, that is all that he needs to instill, to, right. to, these, to, it's to, to make crystal clear the density of the moment. Well, I love this. Um, yes. Wait, so then we go, thy hand, Belinda, because that's where the, so if you sing it, thy hand, Belinda, you're not doing anything. No. So you have to go into the, 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 um, the, the natural rhythm of the language, thy right. hand, Belinda. everything's there. And then you've, you're not being Baroque, you're just doing the text. Yeah. And you're allowing the text that goes on, and and that's why that's why music is great because it distills um, the strongest, deepest emotion in all of us, and uh, whether we like it or not. Um, Bravo, Maestro! Yeah. I, I have to say that despite this movable feast of locations and your beautiful home, we have to end this now um, simply because of time constraints. But I I have to thank you, David Stern, uh, great conductor, great theater man great symphonic conductor too, which we haven't discussed, but a person who knows where to go and what will happen. One last thought before we part. Where would you yes. like this all to go after this catastrophe we've been going through? I would like music to mean so much more. I would like to 
every muse, muse, person who listens to a concert for the first time after this pandemic um, tastes that moment and never loses that that moment means to them. Bravo, bravo. David Stern from Paris, American in Paris, Michael Shapiro in Chappaqua. Thank you so much for joining me on Interplay. It was a pleasure to talk to you. This won't be the last time that we... No, it won't be. This is Michael right. Shapiro for Interplay Conversations in Music. Thank you for joining us.